Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. Twenty years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Oh, mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> G'day there and welcome to Democracy Sausage Extra. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute at ANU and I'm very happy to be continuing the fascinating discussion we had earlier in the week with a couple of scholars from the ANU School of Politics and International Relations. And if she'd been available at the time, we would have also included in that discussion that school's Professor Zoe Robinson, who specialises in judicial politics, particularly in the United States. And the good news is she's here now. Welcome, Zoe. Thanks for having me, Mark. US election has been really quite extraordinary, which is a bit of an understatement, hugely drawn out before the poll with a campaign period that pretty much takes up the whole year leading up to polling day, and then a whole sort of indeterminate period extending afterwards where there is no result, at least no official result at this stage. Yeah, that's uh, you know, right. Various world leaders have congratulated Joe Biden, and I guess anyone who doesn't have skin in the game can see what the result is. But uh, it's uh, it's pretty extraordinary that we're in this kind of legal sort of electoral twilight period. Yeah, I think that's right. Although I think it's really important to acknowledge that we're really in this legal twilight in the election, largely as a consequence of Trump being unwilling to concede and accept the very clear election results, I think. We're in this situation because Trump doesn't want to let go. Yeah. Yeah, there's been that. There, I don't know if you saw that fabulous. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, really great stuff happening on social media. There's a lot of bad stuff, of course, always on social media as well. But just this sort of upwelling of creativity that you see around big events like this. I don't know if you saw the one of, of Trump in the kindergarten uh, sitting yeah. on the bouncy ball and <laughs> yes. just being told by a uh, by Mike Pence that it's time to leave and he yep. you know, does his nut, I don't want to go. Yep. Uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, anyone listening, um, I'm not sure how you would uh, how you would find it, but if you, yeah, just, I don't know, you put in your search engine, um, you know, Trump won't leave or something and you'll probably come up with it. It is, it is very well done. I like the way it's actually kind of, you know, slightly out of focus, so you can't quite see that the actors aren't. You know, they look 
convincingly enough uh, yeah. to be the, the legitimate article. So it's yeah, I think that's right. I, but one of the best ones that I've actually seen is um, uh, the Secret Service dragging Trump out of the White House, <laughs> and the, the title is "The Best Gift Ever Given to the Secret Service." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there's going to be plenty more of that as this drags on. Um, Now, Trump himself tweeted, as we know, he likes to tweet uh, generally in uppercase, which is the sign of a really balanced mind. Um, And he tweeted, among other things, that uh, we've learnt things from this election. Uh, You know, he obviously had a darker interpretation of that. I guess he's talking about, you know, his allegations of widespread voter fraud and all that. But look, can I ask you, even before we get into any of that, did you learn anything as a scholar and and um, as someone who you know follow understands the judicial side of this, did you learn anything from this election that, uh, or was there something that really surprised you apart from, you know, the aforementioned Trump's behaviour? Yeah, I, I think probably it's worth noting at this point that I'm, despite my accent, also a U.S. citizen, so I'm a dual citizen. So I've lived in the U.S. for about fifteen years, and I've only recently back to Australia. So I kind of watch the election from afar um, and see what's happening, but also come from a position where I've been in the U.S. electoral cycle and the electoral process for a long time. So so learning something about the process, like other Australians, not so much, because I think other Australians are – I talk to my friends and my family and they're so shocked at how this mm. is playing out. How is this not decided yet? How is this not resolved? Uh, my mom asks me questions about the election. She's like – how, what do you mean the states make the decisions about the federal election? She quite, can't quite conceive of how it works in light of our really strong and you know, really robust institutions in Australia with respect to electoral systems. Um, but if I had to say that whether I learned, there's something that I did learn from watching this election cycle is I was, I was surprised given the growing level of partisanship in the United States both in the political branches of government, but also in the judiciary. A number of states have elected judiciaries that Republican judges are throwing out Trump's um, election litigation with, you know, with surprising speed. These challenges are invalid. There's no evidence. Let it go. And having watched the growing partisanship in in the United States over the past years, I wondered whether it would have got past that first post Mm. in some of the state challenges, and it hasn't. So I think I learned from that that maybe the judiciary is a little more robust than my sceptical, scholarly mind had had thought. Yeah, or indeed than the political culture, the sort of shop front of the political culture might suggest. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I can probably be proved wrong in the next three weeks. Who knows? But um, at the moment, that's what I feel like I've learned from it. Maybe there is a little bit more robustness and a little bit more um, independence, even within an elected partisan judiciary, than previously thought. Yeah, it's really interesting, this uh, concept of the electri- elected partisan judiciary, as you just described. That's very foreign to Australians uh, and, and, and to Brits, uh, this idea of, of, you know, there being in a sense, partisan judges. Yeah. Um, people who go in there with a with a background and a and a you know an established record on one side or other of the political divide. I heard Rudy Giuliani in one of his many mad moments, you know, complaining that in some democratic jurisdictions their applications were going before Democrat judges. Yeah. And of course, you know, to my ears, and I, I imagine I speak for pretty much all Australians in this regard. Um, uh, I, I, you know, my instant thought was, what a crazy system. And what do you expect? You politicize the judiciary and then you complain when you're on the wrong side of it. What, what sort of a system is that? I mean, that's not really 
fully a judiciary as far as I can see. It's a, it's a really different model of judicial selection than, than we're used to here. But I think it's important to recognise that even in Australia, we don't have an apolitical judiciary in the way that Australians like to think of the judiciary itself. Um, our judges are appointed, our federal judges are appointed exclusively by the Prime Minister and Cabinet. And so that's a single branch of government controlling the selection of the judiciary. And some would say that that is highly partisan. Mm. And in the States, you have the premiers appointing the, to the state judiciary. And again, yeah, highly Supreme partisan. And, yeah. yeah. So I think that although it has the veneer of this overt partisanship in the United States with the elected state-level judges in some of the states, and I agree, it's really bizarre. So you see judges running on a ticket of being pro-death penalty or anti-death penalty. Mm. It's quite strange. You certainly don't have that here in Australia. But what we have here is something that really sits below the surface. And it's not to say there's not lobbying or running for seats. It's just that we don't see it. We don't see those phone calls where somebody picks up the phone and says, this judge is going to be your conservative black letter judge. This judge is going to be on the side of striking down your, your anti-abortion legislation in New South Wales. These happen. We just don't see it. Yeah. Now, you're, um, you're in the School of Politics and International Relations, as indeed I'm connected with that school as well, um, but you're, you're actually a judicial scholar, really. That's yeah, your, I am. That's your principal training. Uh, where does, in your view, uh, the, this tradition of um, the elected judges and, and that approach come from in the US? Is it, is it literally kind of from the earliest days of, the, of, of settlements and, and that kind of frontier mentality, like elected sheriffs and, and so forth? Is that, is that the kind of derivation of this? Because it, it is quite different from the, uh, the English common law system, or that not, I suppose you wouldn't call it the English common law system, but, the, but the, the Westminster system as it extends into the judiciary. Yeah, that's right. I think that in terms of the US and the idea of an elected judiciary, the thought is, and I'll be really frank, this is not my this is not my area. State courts is not something that I really study. Sure. But the idea of an elected judiciary is to ensure that there's representation across all branches of government and that mm. there's accountability for the other branches through the the arm of the judicial branch of government. But of course there's some there's some real um, irony about this, of course, because if you're going to the polls and you're voting on your large slate of candidates, including judicial candidates, if you're a Republican, you're going to vote Republican all the mm. way down. Mm. Now, a number of states offset this by having other ways of selecting judiciaries in, in the United States. So you can have some judges are elected, but some judges are appointed. Um, some have judges appointed by an electoral commission. Some judges are appointed at the outset, but then have to run for a retention election. So what you have then is a path dependency effect. If if the judge is already on the court, no matter their party, then they usually hold on to their seats. Right. And but have, I agree, and it's have, all quite strange. And you have district attorneys who are elected as well? Yep, all the way down. My yeah. vote for, so I'm registered to vote in Illinois in the city of Chicago in Cook County and you vote all the way down the 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 Council of Sanitation and, and Public Works. I voted for uh, the the Comptroller General um, of Cook County you vote for all the way down to the lowest district level courts in Illinois as well, lowest level executive it, at one, le at one strange. level, that's at one sort of superficial level, that's really quite extensive democracy, isn't yeah. it? I mean, you could, on on the face of it, you could argue that that that's highly democratic. And I noticed that you use that term, and and it's a very common American description of the branches of government, the judicial branch of government. Mm. 
in our system we talk about the separation of powers. They amount sort of to the same thing, but it's a different emphasis. Uh, we wouldn't regard the courts as a branch of government in in our system. We regard them as a separate, you know, entirely separate thing. We talk about the separation of powers and the judicial role is to is to interpret the law. You know, the lawmakers make the parliament makes the law and judges interpret the law. At least that's the kind of um you know, simplistic version of it. Yep, absolutely. Um, but I think I'd push back against that. I think it's it's somewhat of a myth in, in the Australian culture of the idea of the judiciary being these professional neutral umpires that just call these balls and strikes. Mm. Um, so I have a paper that's, that is just coming out with my spear colleagues, Pat Leslie and Jill Shepard, and it's about judicial ideology in, on the High Court of Australia. So we've taken a full sample of decisions from 1995 to 2019 and we've coded the outcomes as liberal or conservative in terms of ideological direction and we create an ideology score for all of the justices using newspaper articles and we code the paragraphs wow. and how they talk about the judges and then we correlate the judges' ex-ante ideology with their voting behaviour. And there's an extremely strong correlation across all areas of law in the High Court between a judge's ideology and the outcomes. And so we hope that this is really a first step to really breaking the myth of the the apolitical court. Now, it's not to say that the judges are making partisan decisions, um, but I think it's human nature, right, as a matter of basic psychology and political psychology. We all necessarily interpret something that is interpretable in two ways, in ways that fit our worldview. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, let's get back to the election itself. Um, There was talk months out Mm -hmm. from the election that it was going to be close, that it was going to... um, you know, possibly end up in the courts. Mm-hmm. I confess I thought that was unlikely just mm-hmm. because it seemed like, yeah, it was always possible, but, you know, it seemed more likely that, you know, that the result would be clear. It's, you know, you know, occasionally get people predicting a draw in the grand final of something or mm-hmm. other, and I think, yeah, all right, okay, yeah, the sides are close. They wouldn't be in the race if they weren't, but, you know, one side will probably win. There's more chance of that than than a, than a kind of a, you know, nil or draw or, draw or whatever it is. However, that's where we've ended up, you know. Um, will the courts decide this result in the end? It's sort of where we've ended up, right? Yeah. It's not necessarily where we've ended up. I, I think it's important to note that Trump, the reason that we are in this realm of, oh, look at all of these challenges to the election, is because that's a political strategy from the Republican Party driven by Trump himself. And I think in a standard year with a standard Republican candidate, not of the Trump ilk, we would have had a concession and we would have already moved on to mm. the transition to, to the Biden presidency. But it, it seems very clear that Trump, even from months back in the face of polling, the accuracy of which, of course, is in question now, but in the face of the of, of polling that showed that Trump was going to lose the election, it was very clear he was going to have a litigation strategy to try to undermine the electoral process. He is a litigator, isn't he? He, he does yes, like he the is. courts. <laughs> he does like the courts a lot. Um, I, I think Trump is that that really awful stereotype you get a, of Americans, which is if something goes wrong, litigate. Yeah. You know, he really has a litigious frame of frame of mind, and you've seen that from his whole family. All of these litigation for things they don't like, all the way down. Um, but in this context, I think it's really concerning because what he's doing is really undermining democracy. There's really no validity or veracity to any of these to these lawsuits that are going forward in all of the different states. And what they've served to do, as some of recent survey work has shown, is 
undermined perceptions of legitimacy in the democratic process and in the elections themselves. And I think that's very damaging. It, it is extremely damaging. But I mean, he, he is he, he's not really talking to the whole of America here. He's talking to his base, which has really been the way he's governed all the way through. And in fact, it nearly worked. When you look at him getting 70 plus million votes, uh, you know, I've banged on on this podcast about, you know, how I think Trump's been the most efficient builder of, of, um, of, of his opponent's base, you know, mm. by, by simply by the sort of rancorous way he's gone about things and the incompetence as yep. well. Yeah. Um, but he's only ever really been about talking to his side. Yeah. Uh, he's right. a divider in chief, as, as everyone knows. Yes. Uh, and he, you know, if, if the, if the Democrats hadn't you know, done very well in this election, you know, broken the records also, uh, then they, Trump, Trump would have got a second term. And that's what he's doing now, it seems to me. He's, he, all he needs is for his base to believe that there's been malfeasance, that there's been this, you know, something unfair has been done, that it's been systematized and that the media and everyone else was all part of this yep. giant conspiracy. And, yep. So therefore, if any of these applications, and a lot of them are being thrown out, but of course, as, as we both noted, they, um, when they're thrown out by a lower court, an application, some complaint or whatever, because it has no no validity, no no substance to it, uh, they say, "Well, it's a Democrat judge, or it's you know that, mm-hmm. that's the the judiciary, that's you know that's what we expect from the mm-hmm. elites and everything else." Um, all, they, all Trump really needs is for his supporters to to buy into this stuff, and mostly yep. they buy into the you know the earliest pronouncements he makes on things. Yep, I think that's you know, right. We've had this election stolen from us. Yep, and it's very concerning. And there's no very there's no good way to push back against that narrative. I don't think when you have uh, really rabid supporters who are willing to believe whatever they're told, regardless of the veracity. And I think that even more concerning that really builds on what you've been saying is that Fox News is starting to really shift the tide. Um, they they pulled Kayleigh McEnany, the the press secretary, off air when she was making claims of voter fraud, yeah, I saw which that, was yeah. really unheard of. And now, of course, the Trump supporters are saying, well, Fox News has gone to the dark side. Hmm. So rather than saying my were, news were, source is were, valid, yeah, that, that now was, they're invalid. That's right. And they were super dirty about Fox News calling Arizona for the Democrats yes, quite they early were. on. they were. Um, and Arizona remains in play, doesn't it? I mean, it's uh, at least in legal play. <laughs> Um, in some play, I think Arizona is pretty clearly going to go to Biden. The, the, the election challenge there, the litigation there is, um, called Sharpie Gate. Right. So the idea that somebody who used a Sharpie to mark their ballot. Now, the, just, Sharpie is not a term we use oh, here. Isn't it? Not, not that I'm, you, do you know the term Sharpie? Texter? Yeah. Does that work? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Texter works. Textergate. Yeah. Um, where they mark their ballot with a texture and then the voting machines apparently don't scan them. Right. And so the litigation challenge is over, over this Sharpie gate that it, it's not being scanned and their votes aren't being counted. Right. But to be really clear, this is only only really brings into play 200 votes. Right. That's not going to turn Arizona for and it's got to be bollocks anyway. I mean, un, under, I mean yeah. isn't the, the, the general – correct me if I'm wrong here, but the general sort of tendency – I don't want to call it a bias because that has this sort of a pejorative implication, but the – the uh, tendency that uh, courts have in relation to electoral matters is to lean in favour of the elector being, you know, being heard, of the vote being valid, right? So that would seem to me to be a clear case where, okay, a voting voting machine doesn't count it, yep. but the vote's still countable. That's right. It's just not being recognised because of the particular ink in a particular pen. It doesn't. Yep. You can't deny a voter, no. presumably, the expression of uh, preference. Yep, that's just exactly right. Of that. 
And the really interesting thing, I think, about a lot of these these kind of battleground states and these elections, the election litigation, is that they're occurring in states with um, Republican-governed election authorities and Republican legislatures. And so a lot of the litigation in, in Arizona is over in Maricopa County, which is a highly Republican county. Um, and Arizona is run by state, you know, a Republican legislature. And they're all coming out and saying, our election was perfectly valid. We were extremely transparent. Um, our count was going up on an hourly basis on social media and our websites. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I don't think the litigation in Arizona is going anywhere. Is Arizona um, a bit more um, sensible in its – is the GOP there more reflective of John McCain's style of republicanism because that was his former state, of course? You know, I'm not sure. Right. I think that Well, let's it, hope that it is anyway. I hope that it is. Yeah, I think that it's getting I think that we're going to see a lot of work done at least from from election scholars going forward about this idea of what type of republicans we are. So you see the Lincoln project coming to the fore saying we're republicans but we're not Trump republicans mm. and we want to get Rep- Trump out, so we're going to canvass for Biden. Now that's obviously now Biden's been elected, that'll shift. They'll start looking for their own candidates from the Republican Party. But I think you're right to say there are different types of Republicans and perhaps that's what's driving the, the split vote in areas like Arizona that we didn't expect. It's going to be fascinating to watch the on, ongoing um, implications for the Republicans. Let's just take a very quick break there because I've been so fascinated by this, I realise I've let this drift a bit too long. But uh, we'll have, have a quick break and come back in just a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, when we were, uh, just before the break, we were talking about, you know, the implications for the Republican Party. One of the other things that was interesting, Zoe, about the election was, I mean, among so many different things, but, you know, uh, the the Georgia uh, result. It's a pretty narrow result for the Dems. That's going to a full recount, I think, of 5 million votes. That's right. I'm not sure what the margin was, but it's in the sort of 10,000 votes range, or was it? So I think Georgia is within the margin for a recount, but yeah. Georgia state election law says that in order to confirm the validity of results, you'll they recount a particular county. But the Georgia Secretary of State has decided to do a full hand recount of all of the ballots, given how close it is. And they've only got nine days in which to get it done. Apparently. They do. And November there's... 20 is a certification drop date. Yeah. And they've got five million votes to count by hand, which is... I would have thought. I would have thought the faster you do that, the more likely you are to have errors in that process as well. Although it's really just um, looking for errors. 
Right, really. right. And it, it, it so would you'd be just be counting all Democrat votes yeah. and deciding if there were any that weren't legitimate votes and That's putting right. them aside and likewise with the Republicans. That's right. And then yeah. even after that process, because it's within the margin, then a recount can be requested by the losing candidate even after the full hand recount, and that would be a scan recount on, on the part of the state. Right. So we might end up with three recounts in I Georgia. can't imagine Trump saying, oh, yeah, that's fine. Uh, if I agree. Yeah, yeah. What was I complaining about? I, yeah. I should have kept my mouth shut. Wish he did. Now, yeah. um, <laughs> and there's two Senate runoff races. Is that right in yeah, Georgia? Yeah, there are two runoffs. Well, I don't really understand that. What's that? So unless that the candidate about? gets 50 0.1% of the vote, it goes back to the state to have an election to say, you know, you need to be really clear about who you want to represent you in right. the Senate. Right. And it was, there was potential for the election they were thinking about that may one runoff may happen. But to get the two runoffs is really extraordinary. And it has a lot of really significant implications um, yeah, for the because, control of the Senate. Exactly, because that's one of the sort of features of this election is what appears to be a reasonably decisive Biden win. Yeah. But not the same, not the blue wave in the in the Senate where it matters. Yeah, also. or in the House or the state legislatures, actually. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is one of the things that I. The I've Dems been... have controlled the House too. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, that's all right. They, so they keep control of they the keep control. House, right? That's right. But the, the hope was to get control in the Senate. Exactly right. And because that's... otherwise, Biden's agenda is completely stymied. Mm. Mitch McConnell's not going to let anything of Biden's through. Let's be real. Yeah. Um, you know, it has a lot of really big implications. Um, as somebody who's a judicial scholar, the, the primary implication, of course, is that Biden will not be able to have any of his judicial nominees for the Supreme Court should a vacancy come up for the, or for the, any of the lower federal courts. So the Court of Appeals and the district courts won't get confirmed by the Senate. And this from a party that was happy to break all the conventions and have a Supreme Court justice appointed just literally a couple of weeks before. Yeah. The, the election. Exactly right. And look, it, if we think back to Obama's last year and there was the, the Supreme Court vacancy left by Scalia's passing, there are also vacancies in the courts below, which are really important in the United States. The Supreme Court really only hears around 80 cases a year out of 5,000 applications. Most of the final decision-making in the United States is done at the Court of Appeals level. So those judges are incredibly important. And Trump and McConnell knew that. And mm. so McConnell held off confirming any of Obama's choices in that final year for any level of the judiciary. And he did so on this principle that, you know, it's the final year mm -hmm. of, a, of a term. And that's then right. suddenly, forget all that, didn't even matter if it was the final weeks of a term. Oh, that's right. I mean, rules matter only when they, when they, when they favour you, of course. Yeah. I mean, God, what an outrage. Um, and what do you think the longer term implications will be? Because Trump becomes the first president to appoint three Supreme Court Correct. justices, at least in a term. I believe, maybe in a first term. I think that's right. Yeah. Couldn't confirm or deny. Google will tell us after this. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that's right. I'm just not sure whether it's uh, the only one to have ever done it in a first term. In or a single term. A single no, term. I, th yeah. I think there are president. No, presidents have definitely had more than three choices across their across, across their yeah, presidency. Yeah, but most, FDR, most presidents get two terms. Correct. Yeah. Correct. I mean, actually, Trump has appointed 25 percent of the current federal judiciary in the United States. Yeah, and I was, and that's what I was coming to really, because this that becomes then. Um, the pool of potential Supreme Court justices down down the track as well, doesn't it? So the sort of long term implications of of a, of a Republican infusion, if yeah. I can put it like that, is um, 
uh, quite significant. It is. I mean, the, particularly the Trump infusion. I mean, there is a, a growing contemporary norm in the United States to appoint Supreme Court judges from lower federal courts. It's not the rule. There have been judges appointed from state courts or from who have never even served on the judiciary. But in, in face of that kind of growing norm, then you can see a scenario where perhaps a Trump type candidate doesn't win the next election cycle, a, different, a standard a McCain-type Republican. But if they're going to choose from that lower federal court pool, they're going to have Trump-type Republicans to put onto the court. It's interesting to see how it'll play out. Yeah. Now, as you say, you're an American, American citizen. What we're witnessing now is really, to, to, any, to anyone's eyes, I think any objective person's eyes, completely bizarre. You know, an election, clear result, the, the 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 loser won't go uh, and won't even concede that the result has legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, I saw. I I mean, what was his words? He was expecting he was. They were preparing for a smooth transition to a second, second Trump, Trump term. administration. Yeah. Oh my gosh! I mean, this is an official. This is a minister, like one of the most senior ministers yep. in the administration. Yeah. Um. It's it's really quite extraordinary, and then we see that he's uh, the Trump sacked Mark Esper, the Defense mm-hmm. Secretary. He's of course the bloke that didn't want to that countermanded Trump's call to have uh, troops sent into American cities to mm-hmm. you know effectively run police actions mm-hmm. uh, with the Black Lives Matters mm-hmm. movement and every, uh, rallies and, and the like. Um, so Esper's obviously a more conscientious fellow in terms mm-hmm. of uh, the, the discharge of his responsibilities than some of the others. He's now been replaced. A number of other people, there's talk yep. of other people a being A number replaced. of Pentagon officials have been replaced with loyalists. Is it hyperbole to think that we might be looking at the portents of a coup? I mean, this term is being thrown around a bit. And um, I wrote a thing a couple of weeks ago about, you know, Godwin's law and how we never want to talk about the Nazis because mm. whenever you do, you know, you've, you've lost the argument mm. and how this might sometimes prohibit mm. a proper examination of, you know, a whole lot of things, a whole lot of mm. actions coming together that amount to creeping authoritarianism. Mm. I'm wondering whether the same kind of device might not be applied here. That is to say, you know, generals are accused often of fighting the last war, you know, of strategizing on the basis of the last war. This is a common complaint about mm. military strategists. Are we also potentially guilty of thinking that a coup needs to look like coups that have happened in the past? We are now in the digital age and Trump is the quintessential digital um, populist mm. leader. You mm-hmm. know, he has built his his public and political power, his electoral power, through the kind of digital sphere and all the conspiracies that underpin it and everything else. I'm wondering whether we ought not to be more, as observers, more attuned to what all of these things that he's doing add up to. Is it possible that we are going to get to a point where he, it, 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 enough things are ambiguous in enough people's minds that he is going to just try and stay there? I think this is a tricky question. So it sounds like it's an easy question, I think. Um, I think as an institutionalist, I come from this perspective that this this is a highly unlikely scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there are enough institutionalists in the United States that have fealty to the Constitution rather than to the you know the current government and Trump. I thought that a few months ago, I must say. I know. and But then, of course, I, I see these things start to pop up, like Mitch McConnell not not recognising Biden as president-elect, mm. which I find really concerning as the, the majority leader in the Senate. 
um, not making that kind of announcement. And then, as you said, Mike Pompeo's statement. And so it starts to put those seeds of doubts in, I think, in terms of how this is going to transition and what it will look like. And I think we're really in a realm of we just don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. Mm. And I was reading a great column or op-ed this morning that was saying, don't fool yourself that America has been this stable democracy for, you know, it's nearly 300-year history. Really, America's been a a more egalitarian-focused democracy since the 60s and the Voting Rights Act and the the um, protection of the rights of African Americans to vote. It's only since then, really, that we've been an inclusive democratic process with inclusive institutions. So it's a really um, thin base on which we're working. We've re- really shaky foundations. Yeah. And those foundations can really be ruptured very easily and very quickly. And, when, and, when, and when, this is one of the lessons of Trump is that a whole bunch of sort of conventions Things yeah. that we've assumed to be the rules of engagement that, that have been normatively applied, uh, you know, because they're observed by yep. both sides, sometimes, you know, clearly to their disadvantage, but to the uh, ongoing, you know, uh, reinforcement of the of the system. Yeah, Trump's come along and said, "Well, I don't need to observe those." He, he just walks straight through all these barriers, yep. and it turns out there is no sanction, not yep. even impeachment, not even um, you know, clear evidence of lying thousands upon thousands mm-hmm. of deliberate lies just mm-hmm. pumped into the system you know b- behavior that uh, that would end anyone else's political career just he just, just walks stick. straight it's through Teflon, because right? as i say he just talks to his own base and yeah. everything is politicized every yeah. every critic of trump is a partisan yeah. there's no criticism that is made of trump that is not made by someone from the left yeah. in his frame of of thinking and this is the way that his base tends to see it as well. And we now know there's 70 plus million of them. Yeah. Uh, and I find that really, really deeply concerning. Yeah. And I think that, uh, I think what you said is completely accurate. It's one of the things I've been thinking about. You know, institutions are only as strong as the actors that, that sit in those institutions, mm. as those actors that are willing to really conform to the institutional norms. And Trump's shown that he's unwilling to conform to those norms. He wants to create his own norms, in fact. And so looking at the 70 million people who voted for Trump, I'm horrified and I'm shocked. And mm. I, I really, it's, it's taken a lot of reflection and thinking about why this is and what's going on. And I think there are a lot of reasons for it. I think ultimately it's driven by, by race and power. I saw, again, another meme that I saw a, a Everyone should Google it out there who's listening. It's like people don't care how miserable, how sick they are with COVID or how hungry they are as long as there's somebody who's more miserable and sicker than them. And that really feels mm-hmm. like what's going on in the US in some in some areas at least. It's extraordinary and it, it, it's deeply worrying that there are people that you would imagine uh, who – I can see past, you know, this moment, mm. who can see the national interest, who are patriots in the sort of long-term institutional sense, yeah. who see past the short-term partisan advantage of Trump or whatever, and who protect the system, uh, but also just people who are smart enough to realise that this is a a very destructive presidency, mm. a very vindictive, vis- mm-hmm. victim-based presidency, mm-hmm. um, and that it has come to an end, and yet... Not uh, wood. Yeah, knock on wood, yeah. Um, uh, I noticed Senator Chris Murphy, uh, one of the Democrats, bemoaned an epidemic of delusion that is spreading out from the White House and infecting the entire Republican Party in the wake of the election. That's That was his observation. And yeah. um, 
it's there are some exceptions to this, of course, as mm. you've noted, but uh, it, it's extraordinary, really, the extent to which Trump has captured the Republican Party. Bearing in mind that when he started running for the um, the, the, the primaries back in 2015, he was not really regarded as a Republican. He had no particularly strong links within no. the Republican Party. No, and he was considered a, a kind of a laughing stock. He was. I, you know, I remember sort of saying to people who were concerned, "Look, don't worry about it." I Same. Mean, it's, it's so a did sideshow. I. He's, Never going to yeah, happen. Yeah. The, the sort of carnival barker and yep. uh, TV reality TV star. It's it's just not going to happen. Yeah. And here we are. He, he not only won the primary, then you know seized the presidency yep. and uh, and and turned the presidency into a into a circus really yeah complete circus and then you have these people who you'd think would vote against him so the some of the districts with the highest covid death rate and infection rates you know as as a direct consequence of trump's policies and inaction on 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 the pandemic voting for trump in higher rates than they ever have before mm. I, I just cannot conceive it but it's true that there are many people who are kind of holding their nose when they voted for him. It seems like uh, some of the people that I've seen interviewed, mm. um, you know, vox popped by various networks, mm. have said, I'm voting for Trump. Yeah, you know, he, I, I don't like everything about him. I don't like this and I don't like that. Then usually not particularly specific, but I guess they're nodding to, you know, some of the sort of objectionable, many objectionable aspects of Trump. But they say, you know, he's he before COVID, he'd got the the economy humming again, finally getting some wage growth, this sort of thing. I mean, we can't deny the legitimacy of those views. I I think it's more that, of a moral question, isn't it? Yeah, about can you it overlook all this other crap that you right. know, that, that constitutes Donald Trump's character? That's right. And you see, a lot of people have said, "Look, I, I voted for Trump not because I agree with his policies on race or criminal justice or COVID." But because I did better economically than I did under the Obama administration. And, and because he apparently cared, even though that's obviously not true. Right? But, bring yeah. jobs back to America or bring manufacturing back to America, all these kinds of things that really haven't played out. But, you know, it doesn't really matter what's behind the message. What matters is the, the message itself. And there's a lot of acceptance of that message. Um, but it is concerning, I still think, if, if we see a number of voters saying, look, my bank account's got an extra $20 a week in it. I, I like that $20 a week. Mm. And so I'm just going to ignore the fact that Trump is divisive and racist and, and sexist and has allegations of sexual assault and rape sitting on his record. Mm. I'll still vote for him because I like that $20 a week. Well, American wages have been flat for decades. I mean, this mm -hmm. is one of the problems. And this is one of the big challenges that faces Joe Biden is is – you know, winning back that constituency, convincing blue-collar traditional Democrats to come home. Mm, I think that's right. Um, and, you know, it's been a really difficult 12-ish years, if you think back. I know in Australia the, the, the great financial crisis, the GFC, didn't really hit like it did in a lot of other places. Um, I always still marvel at how, how well Australia handled it and how well Australia came through. But in the United States, it was it was horror. Mm. It, it was mm. really quite horrific, um, especially in those states up the top, the so-called Rust Belt states, which yep. is, I guess, where they get their name. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, looking at unemployment at that particular time, it was the second highest since the Great Depression. Unemployment was over ten percent. Uh, there were a lot of people out of work and a lot of people, very hungry people. Um, and so Obama comes in and you know he sets up some policies that really try to stabilise the economy, and he was quite successful in that well, as well. Well, I mean, he and Biden did did basically save the US car industry, they didn't did. they, with that huge they did. 
injection of cash uh, and, and, and equity stake, wasn't it? I yeah. mean, it was creeping, yep. creeping socialism, according to the Republicans, but it yep. worked. Yep, exactly. Um, but, but I do think that, that Americans of a certain demographic have been facing a lot of economic challenges for a long time. And so I do think it's very easy for people to say, I need someone to save me. And Trump presented himself as a saviour. Mm. Here I am, I'm going to save this industry that you're part of. I'm going to save your job and I'm going to give you a little bit more money in your pocketbook. And whether or not he comes through on that, um, the vo- some, some demographics or some, some voters appreciate that he's speaking to them and that message. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's a real lesson there, I think, for, for the Democrats. Uh, it's a lesson that's been... I think needed to be learned by social democratic parties around the world, actually. Mm. Um, you know, especially when they've been big advocates of all of the opportunities of transformation, yeah. you know, the green future, globalization and everything else. Yeah. There are, there are people who are material losers or at least believe themselves to be material losers right. in those sorts of frames and, uh, they need to be spoken to or they will become a ma- major political stumbling block. And we've seen that. Um, it's pretty interesting, isn't it, just to back on on, on the election itself, that um, some of the strong men around the world, I'm thinking Vladimir Putin and mm-hmm. Xi Jinping, mm-hmm. have not uh, been conspicuously silent about the result. I mean, it is rather telling, isn't it? Their boy didn't win. It's very interesting. <laughs> and I, I find the timing, I, I, I will confess right now, Russian politics, absolutely well outside anything I know. <laughs> But my so newspaper worry, reading, let me let me tell you about my opinion rather than my expertise. I just find it really fascinating that Putin's been very quiet and now there's talk about Putin getting a general pardon from any crimes he might have committed while he was in office or not in office and then he's going to ride off into the sunset. Oh, he's, bit, he's sick. Well, uh, there's a bit of pardon talk in Washington as well, of course. There uh, is. One theory has it that... Trump could pardon himself for a, you know, potentially federal, you know, crimes. Uh, and another theory is that, that he could, at the last minute, hand over to Mike Pence, who could, pardon as, him. As, as a sworn in president, mm. pardon him. It's all very strange. There are a lot of like machinations and there yeah, it is. But like we keep saying, it might seem outside the realm of any possibility, but who the hell knows what's going to happen? Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's been terrific discussing all of this with you and uh, hopefully it'll become clearer in in, in, in the next couple of weeks. I mean, a lot of this has to actually be sorted out by by Christmas, doesn't it? It uh, does. It does. The um, the, the Electoral, electoral college, college is uh, December 14. December 14, right. and that's to certify each state's election results. That's and right. And then it, it, uh, 23rd of December, so two days before Christmas, yep. the results are transmitted to Congress. But this, of course, is all of this stuff is normally kind of a formality mm-hmm. because – uh, you know, the winner has declared victory, the loser has conceded and, yep. and, and accepted that result. That's the way it's meant to go. Yep. We just don't have people playing, we have, don't have Trump playing by those rules. And we've got a lot of terrible people who just seem to have, you know, signed up to that appalling right. behavior. And there's, there's, a, there's now some talk about whether we're going to have a situation like, I think it's 1896 and Rutherford Hayes' election. And what happens with the Electoral College is that the, the legislature, um, certifies a slate of electors for the Electoral College, they then go up and cast their vote for mm-hmm. the person who the state voted for. But it's possible for the Electoral College to certify a separate, sorry, for the state to certify a separate slate of electors. 
And so, oh, or the state not certifying it and the Republican Party putting their own slate of electors up. So presumably Trump will be applying all of this pressure through, the, through the Republican machinery. And what yeah. we've seen, I mean, going back to the point I was making before about, you know, Trump not having a long history in the Republican Party, the extent to which he has captured this party mm -hmm. is extraordinary. It's it really absolutely is. extraordinary. I mean, yeah. no matter what his behaviour has been like, apart from Romney and one or two others occasionally, um, the, the Republican Party has waved through just about everything that he's done. I mean, yep. it's the, the the sort of um, their silence on these things is is deafening and condemning. I think so. It is. It is. And, and one can only imagine that he has such power over over their electoral future mm. that if he endorses a, a candidate on the right to run in their in their district, they they feel like they'll lose their place, so they just stay silent. Maybe, maybe. I'm not sure. I, I think that. Maybe the fallibility in his plan to try to push a second slate of electors going up, because what will happen then is Congress will decide who the valid electors are, right? Um, and, and that, of course, poses really interesting issues about the composition of Congress and the Senate and who makes those decisions. And it's not clear from the Constitution who does make those decisions. To be clear, um, but it really does call in some federalism issues because you can see Pennsylvania, for example, um, saying, no, no, we had a very transparent process. We, we, we actually ran a 24-7 online cameras. You could watch us count the votes. Yeah, yeah. Don't come in and impugn our electoral process. Same with the state of Georgia, you know, run by the Republicans. They're like, no, actually, we ran a really great mm, process. Mm. So you can kind of see a, a setup of Republicans at the state level in a clash against Republicans, the Trump and the Trumpians at the federal level. And so I think that's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out over the next couple of weeks. It's a really big moral test for this party, isn't it? Because they, they need to actually accept that this era is over, uh, that the electors have put in a democratic president. And that is whether they like it or not, that's what happened. And no amount of, of skullduggery or, or sort of after the fact maneuvering will change that fact. Yeah. I, look, I think that maybe the, the Trump presidency era is over, but I think the, the era of the Republican Party utilizing every nook and cranny in the mm. electoral process to capture the election is, is certainly not over. Yeah. I think one thing that's really critical to note for Australian listeners is that electoral districts are, are created by the state legislatures. And this election was really, really important because it comes at the end of a census. Um, the 2020 census. So the redistricting process will happen in state legislatures next year in 2021. So gaining control of the of the state legislatures was very important for Democrats in order to change the district so it wasn't partisan gerrymandered in the way that it has been for the last 10 years. The Democrats that do a bit of partisan gerrymandering of their own. Oh, everybody does partisan yeah. gerrymandering. The Republicans have proved to be absolute expert masters at partisan no. gerrymandering, however. and yeah. um, It's just such a crook system. I mean, we call it redistribution in Australia yeah. and it's done by the Electoral Commission. I it mean, is. They take submissions from the parties, but yep. ultimately they... It's a, it's a, you know, arm's length from either side. Exactly. But no, not in the States. And, <sighs> you know, one analyst predicted that Trump, uh, sorry, Biden would have to win by between two and four percentage yes. points of the popular vote to get the electoral college votes that he needed. But by losing, so the Democrats actually did fail to turn a single state legislative house that they needed. They put $88 million into it. 
compared to the Republicans, 60 million, and they still didn't win a single one. In fact, they lost New Hampshire to the Republicans. So if there was a stack on in this uh, in this election, it was a pretty bad one. Yeah, that's As a number exactly of Democrats right. have made the point. If, yeah. if we rigged this election, we didn't do it very well. Didn't do it very well at all. Professor Zoe Robinson, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today on Democracy Sausage. And um, so thanks for, for coming and having a chat with us. And, and I really look forward to talking to you about that paper, um, looking at uh, judicial appointments and, and their um, their impact in decision-making down the track. You were talking about that paper, and I think when, when that comes out, Thanks for having you. me. Have Happy to talk about judicial politics in Australia anytime. Excellent. Thanks very much. And thank you for listening to Democracy Sausage Extra uh, wherever, wherever you are around the world. Thanks for your interest and your support. Uh, I'll be back later, a few days from now, with another Democracy Sausage. Talk again next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.